This is Medieval Death Trip for Thursday, September 1st, 2016. Episode 29, Back to School with Eberhard's Labyrinthus. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. The summer is drawing to a close here in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, though apparently no one's passed that message on to my thermometer. Uh, uh, But this means that it is time to go back to lessons, back to books, back to teachers' dirty looks. That's right, school's in for autumn. Have you ever wondered why the traditional Western school year starts in the fall? Well, you can keep wondering because there are a lot of different competing explanations, uh, and many of them are, of course, convinced that the others are pure hokum. I was taught one of the most common, and most commonly, scare quotes, debunked explanations, uh, which is that it was all about needing children to work on the farms and bring in the harvest. And once that's done, the children are just killing time on the farm, so you send them off to the local one-room schoolhouse to occupy their short winter days. One of the common objections to this argument is that if this were really true, then school wouldn't start until after our other usual harvest festivals, uh, which would be anywhere from the end of September up to Halloween at the end of October. If anything, school starting in late August or early September is taking children away from the farm right before the height of the harvest season. But of course, the answer to this objection is that just because a fall start now means a date roughly around Labor Day, Uh, That doesn't mean that that has to be the precise date around which the tradition of an autumnal start began. We could have just drifted in modern times from a truly post-harvest date into uh, the current late summer dates. Now, because when all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail, uh, I was drawn to a medieval explanation. In preparation for today's episode, I've been reading up on medieval university education. And one of the things I learned was that the typical academic year for most medieval European universities started around October 1st and included a two-month summer break. So, sounds pretty close to what we have today. Between that autumnal start and summer stop, there was variation from place to place in how they divided up the calendar, whether by semesters or trimesters or quarters. And also, as is increasingly common in American colleges today, Students were graduating or simply discontinuing their studies at lots of different points throughout the calendar, so that the notion of fall enrollments and spring graduations was much looser than it would become in later periods. But anyway, I saw this academic calendar, which is rather obviously not about keeping children on the farm. Medieval university students, even the poor scholars, tended not to be working field hands. Uh, And I leapt to the conclusion which it turns out seems to be moderately well-supported, that our grade school academic year derives from what is really the original institutionalized academic culture in the West, the universities. Their traditions were well-established long before any notion of widespread public primary education began to form. And why wouldn't these new primary schools model themselves on the universities? All that said, There is still an underlying agricultural factor in this calendar, because the traditional start of the university term does still coincide with the end of the harvest, traditionally marked in Britain by the Feast of Michaelmas in late September. But the significance of Michaelmas as an end-of-harvest season date is that it marked the moment when workers would be released from contracts and could change jobs, 
Domestic servants would be hired or fired. Arranging new leases and moving house would take place. And because of that, Michaelmas came to mark the start of the legal year, when appointments to office would begin and so forth. And so that's one of the main reasons why the university year was designed to align with this legal year. That's when the new officials take up their offices. So the conclusion of the harvest is kind of the reason for starting school in the fall, but it probably doesn't have much to do with child labor. Now, no doubt there are tons of examples of individual U.S. school districts in the 1800s explicitly invoking the fact that parents need their kids at home on the farm at certain times and using that to determine school policy. Um, But I would still maintain that in the broader scope of the history of why school starts in the fall, the kids bringing in the sheaves connection is just kind of coincidental to the larger tradition that sets the default practice. Also, in looking into this question, I learned an interesting bit of trivia, which is that in the Southern Hemisphere, it's more common for the school year to more or less match the calendar year, starting in January or early February, uh, which seems pretty sensible here in the 21st century. It would certainly make my life easier. Uh, At the end of every year, I like to put together a mixed CD anthology of music from or memorializing that year. Um, And yes, I do mean actual physical CDs with printed uh, original cover art and liner notes, even in this day and age. But when I say end of the year, I mean end of the school year. I've basically been in academia my entire life, so emotionally and personally, my year is the school year. That's the primary unit of my life. Um, But it means my yearbook CDs all have rather clunky, hyphenated years in their titles, so This year's CD, for example, which I finished back in June, is the 2015-2016 edition, and next year's is going to be the 2016-2017 edition. It sure would make my sentimentality uh, and graphic design a lot simpler if our school years started in January. But they don't. Uh, Here they've just started, right in these last couple of weeks of August, and I thought that in honor of this back-to-school moment, we'd return to our favorite schoolmaster, Eberhard the German, and his 13th-century handbook of rhetoric, The Labyrinthus. We last heard from Eberhard in episodes 9 and 10, where we learned how miserable it is to be a master in a medieval Latin grammar school. Uh, and we're going to hear a rather similar theme in today's excerpt, which I expect will wrap up our time dipping our toes in the Labyrinthus. Uh, those waters are, frankly, rather shallow, and after this episode... I think we'll have pretty well exhausted them. Our selection today is a section near the end of the Labyrinthus, entitled, according to one rubric, The Miseries of the Master. Uh, And yes, this is a different section than what we looked at before, though you'd be forgiven if you experienced some deja vu in today's episode. Now, Eberhard has been writing his whole book in Latin verse, and this penultimate section is an elegiac poem where he gets to show off some of the rhetorical figures that he's been teaching in the earlier parts of the text. It's also an opportunity for him to voice his complaint yet again about how unfair life is and how worthless scoundrels have succeeded where he has been left stuck in this unfulfilling, low-status job. More specifically, his first complaint, uh, just to clarify it a little bit, is that the local authorities, especially those who were born into power, are practicing simony, which is the crime of selling offices and positions uh, basically by taking bribes rather than choosing the candidates of greatest merit. 
The term also applies the other way around to the paying for church offices. Eberhard's complaint about the corrupt officials bleeds over into resentment of the similarly entitled and overbearing parents of the school children. In fact, it's a little hard to tell exactly where he stops criticizing the one and starts criticizing the other. And these adults are apparently even harder to deal with than their troublesome adolescent offspring. Now, it's debatable how much of Eberhard's pessimism in this passage could just be a traditional rhetorical posturing. Uh, But I, for one, think the bitterness that comes through is plenty real. One quick note about the Labyrinthus and its rather grim tone that I didn't mention in our previous episodes um, is that the title does translate to labyrinth um, as just one variant Latin form of the Greek word, but it's also been suggested that it's a kind of pun on or allusion to the phrase labor habens intus, or having hardship within it. Uh, Labor, meaning, yes, labor or work, Um, but usually with a negative connotation, so more like hardship or toil or drudgery or misery even, Um, and intus being inside or within. So labyrinthus is like a kind of warning label, misery inside. Oh, and for the curious, this meaning is purely a Latin pun and has nothing to do with the Greek etymology of the word labyrinth, uh, an etymology that's actually shrouded in mystery. The figure we're going to encounter right at the start of this text is the grammar teacher, who has been, uh, throughout the course of the Labyrinthus, meeting the allegorical figures of nature and philosophy and her daughter's grammar and poetry, among others. We now find him languishing in the labyrinth of learning. That's where we'll join him, and we'll follow Eberhard, who is both our narrator and really is also that third-person grammar teacher, as he runs down a litany of injustices and indignities that he faces. Indeed, near the end of this excerpt, we get a glimpse of Eberhard's biography. Uh, We learn that he went first to the University of Paris, and thence on to an ill-fated sojourn at Orléans, either to continue his studies or perhaps to try to teach, uh, though as with grad students today, the two were not mutually exclusive. As for more precise details of his life, we just don't know. A couple of glosses and manuscript copies of the Labyrinthus state that he ultimately wound up as a schoolmaster in Bremen, but who can say how reliable that info is? But on to the miseries of the master. I'll be reading, as before, from Evelyn Carson's Master's Thesis Prose Translation of Eberhard's Verse. Instructed in the foregoing, he sits in the snare of the labyrinth, the clamorous prison and doleful house. The mother of elegy enters, slowly and with heavy tread. She speaks to him sadly and with compassion for the misfortunes of this sorrowing man. The plagues of your chair, toil, wrath, poverty afflict you. An avaricious band tortures you more, for it does not give with grace what gratitude demands. Nay, more, it renders its creation displeasing to God. He whom favor begot dares to be the child of simony. For a price he confers a spiritual right and sells permission to train boys. Nor does fear arising from Simon's downfall dissuade him from it. What the renowned devotion of the ancients has established, he discards or disparages, denying that it is wholly accepted. He even gives to unwarranted avarice the cloak of law, He devises a law which forces you to have a license. 
He wishes to share the profit, but not the labor. Without fear he reaps that which he does not sow. He commands, and you must obey his command with the prompt diligence of your servitude. If you do not, in slave fashion, obey his orders when he commands, you lack peace altogether. He even deplores our complaints about toil, for the reason that in this way your profits decrease. Lying cleverness often cuts down the reward of your sweat, which he, the parent, first promised you. One cuts your wages in half, another refuses to pay the whole, insisting loudly that his son has learned nothing. Still another swears that he has paid you what he has not paid. Another gives much with sweetness of word, little with his hand. Lest your wage perish, a mercenary plaintiff, you flee in sadness to court for remedy. If the decision of the judge grants you anything, the tongue of the defender divides it, and your purse swells not. The cause of your poverty is threefold, the greater one first, the greatest one second, the great one last. Certain students are of a perverted nature, so that better things displease and worse things please. They dare disgracefully to depreciate the bloom of youth with forbidden and dishonest deeds. They find their pleasure not in the wax tablet, but in money, not in the stylus, but rather in throwing dice, not in the hoop, but in the ball game. They prefer a tavern to study hall, tavern keeper to teacher, and harlots to textbooks. Since they are not chaste, they are not boys. They do nothing which children do, nor are they accustomed to make amends for their misdeeds. They age other boys by corrupting them with their faults. Thus a sheep infects sheep with scurvy. Insanity of mind harasses certain ones who are unbridled. Flayed skin does not check them, Kind words, the admonishing nettle, the humiliation of switches cannot calm them. For such as these, disputes are wont to be the lesson, insults their recitation, fighting their meter, quarreling their rule. Disputes become sweet, insults tasty, fighting seemly, and quarrels savory to these wild animals. Many, having the nature of the cunning fox, are deceitful. Feigning simplicity, they contrive treacheries. They assume an angelic expression, conceal the stratagem of a demon, and fairly flow with the drunkenness of deceit. They conceal mire under a gem, poisons under honey, a thorn under a flower, mud under crystal. They are happy if they can secretly harm their comrades and are eager to pretend innocence of guilt. Their simulated simplicity and simple simulation strike those off their guard a heavier blow. Windy pride, the curse of Lucifer, pernicious plague of the sky, puffs up not a few. Beauty, knowledge, and wealth produce pride and in turn begets ruin. With the assistance of an impious mother, a wicked daughter goes to ruin and this pernicious parent destroys her proud children through a combination of ruin and envy. They scorn the humble and tolerate no equals. They desire to make themselves unequal to all their equals. They wish to dominate the rest, to be venerated more than the others, to enjoy more liberal authority. Reprove them with words, they swell up like a bladder and make ready to roar with more turgid noise. Punish them with switches, 
Indignation is rampant, and angry expression spreads as wax is melted by fire. There are dullards. Sooner you will make an impression on adamant than they may grasp what you are implanting by teaching. The anvil scorns blows, and the stony field, though you sow grain, refuses to bear fruit. Though it hammer away incessantly, your tongue leaves no imprint upon the mines of iron and merely tortures your head with its continual motion. There are those who yield to learning as water to a seal. What they take on suddenly cannot last. Their brain is fluid, a useless vessel, a vessel without a bottom in which nothing poured into it can remain. Those whom lightheadedness renders unstable, no one place of study pleases but two or ten. He is as sure of these as one who holds an eel by the tail. You ask for pay for your toil, he flees. Others represent Proteus. Changing desire is continually altering their expression. What a moment ago was pleasing now displeases them. They spurn things zealously sought, and now the spurned things they zealously laud. Those who trudge to school in the morning with the tortoise make for their homes in the evening with the leap of a hare. However short the hour of learning, it seems long. A day of idleness has been ruined for him. Words of instruction make as great an appeal to the unwilling as the yew tree to a bee, baths to a cat, a switch to a dog. The twice five figures of algorithmus will not suffice to enumerate the causes of your complaint. My complaint can but briefly recount the annoyances of your laborious task. The forge of anxiety and study has cooked your heart, Hunger for Paris has afflicted your body. Just as Paris is paradise for the wealthy, so it is an insatiable swamp for the poor. Next, there was for you the furnace of Orléans, the darling of authors, fountain of the muse, the summit of Helicon. You returned thence, stripped of clothing and mantle, pale, thin in body, and without resources. But now the care of your flock enslaves you burns you and binds you with duty of office, with sedulity, and with fear. Reading, which you watch over by the nocturnal torch and hear in the morning, too often dulls your brain. Many tedious things rise up before you while each reads his composition and you sit back in your lonely chair. No less discouraging is the declamation of your boys, begun early and continued late, to speak about matters suited to the mental ability of your boys is daily your cross of toil. To hear their verses, to point out defects, to apply the file, not petty is this versality plague. Though you seek salvation through dictum in each day, in the end, salvation is still a stranger. Though in the chair of learning, you must often sit as a judge over trifles. On each side of you arise the complaints of childish minds, and a tearful voice grates on your ears. When you have heard both sides and have made some decision concerning both, you order it to be carried out under penalty of the rod. You have the burdensome task of meeting out punishment for misdemeanors, oftentimes of concealing great ones. If you take pains to conceal a boy's offense, the father's tongue rages bitterly. A punishment due to your shortcoming is the answer. Parents' anger, reproofs, insults, threats beat upon you. 
all manner of reckoning will be insufficient to compute the grievous disputes of your chair. Actual experience proves what a burden, not honor, it is to check diverse groups of the untaught. There ascend to the chair those who have not learned. They promise very many things, they accomplish few. The ape of a teacher seeks rather the name without the substance than the substance without the name. The latter is apparent, the former concealed. The learned gives place to the unlearned because the other pleases more, and because the group won over by him will belong to the one standing in his place. The parrot gives way to geese, the swan to the raven, the lark to the owl, the nightingale to the crow. Weary with effort, I come to the end of my journey. I limp, and my tottering foot wavers. So that's Eberhard's catalog of the miseries of the grammar school master. Since we're finishing out our time with Eberhard, I thought I'd tack on here the actual final lines of the Labyrinthus. So after the section we just finished, he segues somewhat awkwardly into a final discussion of the forms of poetic rhythm and meter, uh, providing a bunch of examples from famous classical authors and medieval poets. But after those examples, we get Eberhard's uh, very brief closing statement. And here it is. God favors, my anchor attains the longed-for port. Glory be to the Father, glory be to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, who are the same but not the same. A triple otherness, a single essence has the triune God, to whom the plan of the universe is manifest. Reader, Grieve if you see any decay in Eberhard's poem. Let the file's correction keep watch. Let the detraction of envy sleep. No one is wholly blessed. Evils are near the things we ought to seek. I love that last line. Uh, it's so perfectly Eberhardian. Evils are near the things we ought to seek. It's a bit too bad that the actual Latin just isn't quite that elegant, uh, or I'd make it the motto of this podcast, maybe. Of course, one of the fun things about Eberhard's criticisms of students and their parents and of the teacher's vocation is the way uh, they continue to resonate today, uh, maybe setting aside some of the specific focus on corporal punishment, um, as we discussed back in episode 10. Even within his very specific historical context, he's nonetheless touching on some human universals, uh, and some things that maybe aren't universal across all cultures, but are nonetheless intrinsic to the institution of classroom learning and the relationship between younger students and their older teachers. As I mentioned before, uh, Eberhard is talking about the medieval grammar school, uh, in which children from the ages of 7 to 14 or 15 would have learned how to read, write, and speak Latin in preparation for clerical careers uh, and possibly further study at a university. As I was preparing this episode, uh, I originally thought I'd keep with the back-to-school theme by shifting up the educational ladder a step from Eberhard and talking a bit about how a medieval student would have been admitted to a university and enroll in classes, uh, and particularly the interesting ways they would pay for classes. 
So I plunged into a lot of reading, uh, which is part of the reason why this episode got delayed. And I discovered that some of the things I thought I knew about this process and was expecting to share and comment on are, uh, based on the more recent research I was reading, uh, not quite in the shape that I had been led to believe. Uh, So that's a topic we'll have to come back to after I've gotten a bit more clarity on it. Uh, There are other texts out there involving the escapades of university students, which should give us plenty more occasions in the future to sketch a picture of medieval university life. But I did come across one nice, clear discussion on an aspect of medieval university students uh, that I can share here to close out this episode. Uh, And that's a breakdown of the categories of student that made up the ranks of the typical medieval university. This analysis comes from a chapter contributed by Rainer Christoph Schwingus to the book Universities in the Middle Ages, which is volume one in the Cambridge series, A History of the University in Europe. Eberhard characterizes his students according to their psychology or personalities. Schwingus classifies university students under more formal distinctions of educational goals with social rank layered on top of that. Before we get there, though, we should clarify a few things about medieval university education that are rather different from college or university today, uh, even though they're wrapped up in a lot of the same terminology that we still use. The main thing to address is what an academic degree meant. The first modern assumption to strip away is that you would need a university degree to do anything. Earning a degree was in no way a requirement for getting any kind of job or holding any kind of office, even highly advanced ones like archbishop or court physician, uh, except for one class of jobs, which was teaching in the universities. That is pretty much all an actual degree merited you, the right to teach. In that sense, it's not unlike many graduate degrees today, uh, especially in the humanities and arts. Uh, But this was basically true also of the baccalaureate in the medieval university. And we should also remember that these were all bachelors of arts degrees, uh, meaning the classical liberal arts. The bachelors of science, I was somewhat surprised to learn, did not exist until the mid-19th century. But completing a bachelor's degree simply entitled you to begin a kind of apprenticeship in teaching a chosen field under the tutelage of a master. The master's degree entitles you to start doing the teaching, and the quite rare doctorate is really just uh, some extra honors and prestige beyond the master's. Which is really all just to say that most medieval university students didn't really go to university to get a degree. Uh, They actually went to get an education, as well as to do what we'd call networking. Their acquired knowledge was expected to be shown far more in practice uh, than just being attested to by a piece of vellum. Uh, That may sound like part of a very modern critique of higher ed, you know, the kind that comes with calls for more vocational programs and a focus on practical skills, uh, usually as opposed to the traditional liberal arts. Um, But it also points to one other recalibration we have to make, which is to shift the educational rungs sort of down a step. So your starting medieval university student is someone who has just left the grammar school, which we just said was about 15 years old. So your incoming university student is typically a kid between 14 and 16 years old. It's a bit unfair to try to draw direct parallels. You know, it's not really the same. Um, but 
it's also not totally misleading to say that the medieval university liberal arts sequence is closer to going to high school than starting out in a modern college. Demographically, of course, it's very different, since only a tiny fraction of the population would ever be university students in the Middle Ages compared to the vast majority of teens in the industrialized world today who attend secondary school of one form or another. Um, but I do think you can get a slightly clearer understanding of medieval students if you transpose that initial BA onto present-day secondary school and let the medieval higher degrees kind of cover the modern undergraduate experience. If nothing else, it recalibrates the ages of the students at each stage uh, fairly consistently. So, what types of students would you find at the medieval university? Schwingis identifies five types, most of which have some corresponding medieval label that appears in the university statutes, uh, which helps show that these are categories that people had you know, a conception of at the time, and they aren't just the invention of retrospective historical analysis. Oh, and we should get one other thing out of the way, though you will find here and there extremely rare exceptions. Uh, as a rule, pretty much literally, all of the students and teachers at the university level were male. Women could be members of the university community and partake of the legal benefits and privileges of such membership, uh, and indeed, there were significant numbers of women in the university community as recorded in medieval university registers. But this membership derived from being, on the one hand, employees of the university, servants, maids, kitchen workers, uh, or on the other hand, being spouses of faculty. So when we talk about the students, we may as well default to the masculine pronoun. Uh, and indeed, it's not just that it's safe to do so, we probably ought to do so to keep that fundamental gender inequality of the institution foregrounded. Okay. The first type of student is the scolaris simplex, the simple or plain student. He's a young man around 15 years old, give or take a couple of years. He has no intention to sit the baccalaureate exam and attain a degree. He's really just there to take courses, which means listening to lectures which recite and explain the canonical texts of the liberal arts, um, in particular Aristotelian philosophy. Uh, and additionally, he'll be learning the arts of disputation and scholastic argument. These are skills that will serve him well in pretty much any level of church position. And remember that this doesn't necessarily mean pastoral or monastic jobs. Uh, lots of these are basically white-collar, bureaucratic, administrative positions. I mean, they are clerical positions in both the modern and medieval sense. On average, he only attends the university for one and a half to two years, and more often on the lower end of that range than the higher. He's generally from a fairly prosperous commoner family, so merchants and burger families especially, uh, but sometimes well-to-do craftsmen. Generally, these students are from urban backgrounds, uh, except in England, where rural and village backgrounds for students were somewhat more common. And they also generally came from the local region of their university. Uh, even the great international universities, like Paris, drew the bulk of their students from a home region. So not unlike the big state research school in the U.S. now. So these are students that, Schwingis notes, we'd classify nowadays as college dropouts. They're only in school for three or four semesters. Seems like should be a relatively marginal group, right? Well, the simple scholar makes up typically about 50% of the student body of the medieval university. 
They are by far the most common type of student. And as such, economically, they are the kind of student that the university becomes shaped to serve. They are its economic backbone. The next type of student is what we probably would have assumed by modern standards would be the most common type, and this is the baccalaureus. This student does intend to complete the course, or cursus, in the liberal arts and sit an exam to earn a bachelor's of arts degree. This would usually take between two and two and a half years to achieve. Demographically, they're going to be quite similar to the scolaris simplex student type. They make up somewhere between 20 and 40% of the student body, depending on where in Europe you're talking about. Uh, and about only one-third of them will go on to pursue a further degree beyond the BA, uh, at which point they would be anywhere between 16 and 19 years old. If you did go on, you became the third type of student, the master's student. Studies for the master's degree took another two to three years, so the master's tended to be around the ages of 19 to 21. Earning the master's degree frequently came with an obligation to teach in the liberal arts courses for two years, uh, though over time it was increasingly possible to wrangle dispensations to excuse yourself from this obligation. Now, the master's student is teaching in the arts faculty and has a master of arts, an MA, but he's probably now using his teaching income to help him work on a degree in one of the higher faculties, so law, medicine, or theology. And the degrees start over at this point, at this next tier. So the MA is actually now trying to earn a second bachelor's degree, but this time in law, medicine, or theology. Uh, it's a bit like some video games where you win all of the achievements at normal difficulty level, and then it tells you to do them all over again, but at hardcore difficulty. That's your progression through the medieval university. The master's students uh, made up only 10 to 20% of the student body. If they advanced, they would become specialist students. This is the student working on a doctorate in one of the higher faculties. Uh, they are generally just 2 to 3% of the total student body. And unlike your modern doctoral student, uh, this fellow is usually already comfortably established, both economically and in terms of social status. He probably already has a good-paying office in the church or in municipal service or at court. The doctorate really is more about attaining greater honors and privileges and less about covering some further and more advanced body of knowledge. Because after all, the canon of knowledge to be learned at the medieval university was a lot smaller than what we have today. By the time you got a master's degree in one of the higher faculties, you probably had pretty much covered everything that really mattered. So a degree beyond that is less about gaining further expertise in your field and more about uh, earning a kind of professional promotion within the university community. The last type of student is less defined by their course of study and more by their special status and treatment. These are the students of rank, sons of the nobility, or family of prestigious churchmen. You know, a wealthy bishop or an abbot might send a member of his household to study law so that they can come back and serve their community. These students arrive dripping privilege, with large retinues of servants and hangers-on. They frequently skip right past the bachelors of arts, having received private tutoring that brings them up to the master's level already. And most commonly, they go into the study of the law. 
the skill most useful in high-status church and courtly environments. Unlike the other master's students, they do not teach. Having to do something as servile as teaching would actually injure their social standing, and nobody would expect it of them. And contrary to what you might assume about medieval power and privilege, the nobility were not overrepresented in the university. But that's mainly because a university didn't offer them much that they didn't already have. Like I said before, no medieval office other than teaching required an academic degree. So if your connections and standing could get you a good appointment, then you didn't really need the education, or at least not any more education than private tutoring could get you. But the students of rank certainly enjoyed some benefits in their university studies. Uh, so for example, seating in the front row at lectures and assemblies was reserved for students of high-ranking birth or honorable status, uh, or in some cases, for wealthy students of common birth who could pay to receive university honors, which would then allow them to join their aristocratic betters at the front of the room. So there you have the five types of students. But where, you might ask, is the poor student? I've read enough Chaucer to know that the poor scholar is a literary type. Where do they come in? Well, poor students certainly did exist. Um, They're recognized in university statutes as the pauperis, the paupers. Their poverty was relative. This is not a case of peasants and serfs sending one favored son off to better their lot at the university in the big city. Individually, they usually are struggling to pay their expenses, uh, but really what they're poor in is connections. They too are largely the sons of merchant families uh, or from the households of minor clergy, sometimes the actual illegitimate sons of priests, but also other kinds of relatives. They don't come with a beneficial family name. They aren't integrated into the web of patronage and nepotism that bound all medieval institutions together. And though we think of the medieval university as being full of churchmen, it displayed very little notion of having any social responsibility to help the poor. While there were scholarships available for poor students, in practice, a lot of these ended up going to well-connected students whose families were perfectly capable of paying the costs. So your poor scholar, like many students still today, paid for their education by working. They might be able to get work in the university as a servant in the residences or kitchens or other organs of the school, like the scribes and booksellers. They might be able to work as a live-in servant to a wealthy student. Or they might find work in town or in its church, or even sustain themselves through begging. So it was hard going. And while student demographics are largely similar across all the student types, other than the students of rank, the one consistent change is that you find fewer and fewer poor students represented at each higher level of education. Not that that's much of a surprise. Well, that's more than enough information for one episode, I think. Uh, Last time, I left you with a mystery word, so let's find out what it meant. Our mystery word from last episode was Fokorach. F-O-C-H-O-R-A-C-H. So, this is a word from Old Irish. It's made up of three parts. Fo is a preposition meaning under or beneath. Kor is a noun meaning broadly an act of establishing or setting up. But in legal contexts, it means a contract, oral or written, uh, of course, usually oral. And the ach suffix indicates a person belonging to or connected with. Put all those together, and you get literally something like 
a person who makes a low contract or a contract under something. Now, we might want to interpret that as a subcontract, and that's not unreasonable. Uh, but based on some related words in context, it becomes evident that what this word is getting at is someone who makes, you might say, an underhanded contract, a bad or wrongful contract, or a contract that falls short of the minimum standards of acceptability or legality. So a fokarach is one who makes bad contracts. To be fair, this is an old Irish word that isn't quite fully attested in the surviving corpus of the language, so explanations of its meaning are a bit speculative. But I liked it, because it's another one of those words for which modern English doesn't really have any one single synonym, but which is a phenomenon, I think especially in our political discussions, that it would be useful to have a word for. We can say swindler, or con artist, or cheat, or fraudster, and those are all close, but they aren't quite the same thing. I also feel a little bit like a fulcherach myself, at least in as much as I habitually fail to deliver on my promises of new episodes in two-week intervals. Um, because it is the start of the new school year here, and I am drowning in class prep, we are going to take a brief hiatus, uh, probably about a month, coming back near the start of October with a new episode. Because we're going on podcast vacation, uh, so that I can be on the opposite of vacation and work life, uh, I'm going to hold off on a new riddle or mystery word. We'll start fresh with a new one when we return. But I don't want to leave you empty-handed, so here's a little standalone bit of medieval wisdom. Uh, actually, in this case, it's classical wisdom, which has been preserved for us by medieval scribes and scholars. And as for one who's choosy about what he learns, especially if he's young and can't yet give an account of what is useful and what isn't, we won't say that he is a lover of learning or a philosopher, for we wouldn't say that someone who's choosy about his food is hungry or has an appetite for food or is a lover of food. Instead, we'd say that he is a bad eater. So that's Socrates speaking in Plato's Republic. Uh, and I think that's a nice back-to-school sentiment, uh, especially if you're an overachieving nerd. All right, we'll be back when the semester has settled down a bit. Until then, you can follow and or tweet at us on Twitter at MDT Podcast. You can email me thoughts longer than 140 characters at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. And at that selfsame web address, medievaldeathtrip.com, you can find more information about today's text and references and those for previous episodes. So pleasant and passionate studies to you, be they formal or informal, and thanks for listening. <laughs>